Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Today's scripture reading is going to be from John chapter 18. We'll be reading from verses 28 to 34. So John chapter 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they, led, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? This is the word of the Lord. All right, I am excited for this uh, new sermon series that's going to take us through the next six or seven weeks or so. And of course, I'm calling it Encounter. And uh, the reason why I want to call it Encounter is simply because that's what I want us to do. I want us to encounter God. I want to talk about ways that Scripture talks about how we encounter God. And here's what I want us to just grasp right away as we begin this. That Christianity, true Christianity, is exactly about that. It is about encountering God. It's about a relationship with God. It's about knowing God, uh, delighting in God, tasting and seeing that God is good. It is about encounter. So we, we, I want us just to be crystal clear as we begin that at its heart, true Christianity is not just a theory about life that we can debate, that we can discuss, that kind of thing. No. True Christianity also is not, at its very heart, some sort of a self-help guide that allows us to learn how we can live our best lives now. True Christianity is not even, listen to this, it's not even, at its heart, a moral system to teach us what is right and what is wrong. No, it is not those things at its very heart. Of course, yes, Christianity, true Christianity, most certainly tells us what is right and wrong. Most certainly it tells us how to live. Most certainly it does give us the way that God wants us to live our lives. Absolutely. But that's not the heart of it. That's not the very center of it. At its very heart, true Christianity is about encountering God, about knowing God, delighting in God, being in a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Encounter. We see this from the very first page of the Bible. As soon as you get into the Bible, God is, reveals himself to be the kind of God who is a personal God. He's not an impersonal being. He's not just some supreme being who's up there or we're, we're down here. He's not an impersonal force as in Star Wars or something like that. From the first pages of the Bible, God is a personal being who wants to know his creation, who walked and talked with Adam and Eve God is a personal being who wants to be encountered. And then as you go through the Bible story, 
Of course, God himself and the person of his son enters into space and time history. The God of heaven and earth enters into all of this to encounter us. And he, of course, Christ goes to the cross. Why does he go to the cross? So that we can be brought into relationship with God. So that we can encounter God. So all I'm just simply saying there is true Christianity at its very heart is about encountering God. That kind of experiential language is all through the Bible. Think back to the psalmist's words, which I already quoted. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That is not just, oh, look up and consider the sovereign, supreme being who is high and above all. That's true, but no, no. We want to taste and see. That's experiential language. That's the language of a heart's delight in God. That's why, for instance, in Romans 8.15, we read that the Holy Spirit is given to all true believers, enabling us, as Jesus did, to cry out to God as Father, Abba, Father, in our distress. We cry out to Him, not as just a supreme being, but as our Father, our loving Father. It's the language of encounter. Or Paul, when he's speaking about how we gather together as believers, says that when the Spirit is working in our midst, as we're speaking God's words, even an unbeliever who comes into our midst will say in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, quote, God is really among you. So here's what I'm praying for this series. I am praying that we would truly encounter God. Maybe some of you would say, I don't even really know what that means. I've never really encountered God before. I'm praying that for the very first time, you might encounter God. Maybe other of us, as we begin to transition out of COVID, maybe during COVID, I don't know how, but maybe you would just say, my heart has drifted. I've drifted away from God. It's not that I've rejected him per se, but I'm not really delighting in him, encountering him. I'm praying that God would bring our hearts back, that we would encounter him, that we would know him and love him. No matter where you're at, I'm praying that this sermon series would be what it's titled. <laughs> There's nothing worse that I want out of this series than to talk about encountering God, but not to encounter God. That would be an utter failure. I'm just praying, Jesus, be merciful upon us as your people. Jesus, we're coming out of COVID. We need you. We need to encounter you. We need to meet with you. All the planning in the world doesn't make a difference if we do not encounter God. So you can pray that along with me, even in your heart right now. Just say, Jesus, over these next weeks, as we begin to come out of COVID, I pray that you would encounter your people. That is what we need above all things. So today I want to begin right at a most basic level. When we want to talk about encountering God, I want to begin by asking each of us to consider whether we have had a firsthand encounter with God or whether our knowledge of God and our understanding of God is more secondhand. So by firsthand, of course, I mean in your own personal experience. You can say, yes, I have encountered God. I'd like more. Uh, it's, it's never quite what I want in this world, but I have encountered God, and I want to continue to do that. That's firsthand encounter. Or would you describe your life more as secondhand, meaning you've heard about other people encountering God. You've You've seen maybe how Christians live, and you say, I think that's maybe admirable. And, but you would not say, I, you would say, I don't really know what this whole idea means of encountering God. I got some understanding, but I have never had such an encounter. Is your knowledge of God firsthand or secondhand? 
That's what I want to press into this morning. So here's how I want to begin. I want to begin in the first place by talking about what I'm going to refer to as the problem of secondhand religion. The problem of secondhand religion. And to do this, I want to look at this little story where Jesus is interacting with Pilate and he asks him a question. But just so we understand, we got to get some of the background nailed down first. This all takes place about a week, well, let's back up a week to before Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. And, and a, a rumor is going around the city. It's on everybody's lips. Everyone's saying, he's finally here. The king is finally come. The whole city of Jerusalem is excited because for centuries the Jews had been reading the scriptures which had promised that God was going to send his Messiah, his chosen one, his king, to rescue them from their enemies. And the Jewish people knew something about enemies. If you know your history, you know that they were under the Roman rule at this time. The Romans ruled the entire world and the Jewish people were not free underneath them. And they had to pay taxes, of course, to fund Caesar and all of his military campaigns. But now the rumor had come that God's long-promised king had entered into Jerusalem. And, of course, a large group of people had even gathered. And as he had come in, they had thrown palm branches down before him, kind of like a red carpet, welcoming the king, Jesus, into the city. The religious leaders had caught wind of this, though, and they were, they were not impressed about this. And so they did what get any good religious group would do. They struck up a committee. And so they struck up a committee to go look into what's going on. This committee went. They did their work. They found. They came back. They said, we need to call a special business meeting. They called a special business meeting. They put forth a motion. They said, this guy's causing a lot of problems. He needs to be put to death for the sake of the nation. Better for just one man to die than for the Romans to crush all of us. Lots of discussion on the motion on the floor. All kinds of debates, potential amendments. And then finally, the vote was cast and the motion passed. And so Jesus then was arrested, and they marched him right down to the governor's palace. The governor's name was Pilate. Pilate had been appointed by Caesar himself. And Rome, they could put up with a lot, they could tolerate a lot, but the one thing that Rome would not tolerate was any threat to Caesar's power. And so now here is this supposed king who has just come into the city of Jerusalem. The king supposedly has been brought before Pilate, the representative of Caesar, who is really the king of the Western world at this time. And Pilate now has a chance to hear from Jesus himself. He's heard all the rumors. Even his wife has had dreams about Jesus. And so Pilate now has an opportunity. He's got this man Jesus standing right in front of him. He has an opportunity to find out the answers for himself. He gets to interrogate Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. And so then comes the big moment. Here's what we read. So Pilate enters, entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, if you've read Jesus very much, his teaching, Jesus, once again here, did what he did in so many other cases. He refuses to allow to be trapped. He will not eat the cheese and let the click of the trap come down upon him. And so Jesus does what he always does. He responds to the question with a question. Really, he flips the whole entire thing around. And in doing this, what Jesus does is he cuts through all the surface-level discussion and Jesus, the, the smartest man who ever lived, zeroes right in on Pilate's heart. The question that Jesus asked Pilate went right to the heart of the matter, 
and went right to the center of Pilate's heart. So we read this in verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, Pilate? Or did others say it to you about me? In other words, Pilate, are you genuinely asking this question for yourself because you want to know about my kingship and about who I am and my kingdom and you're interested in learning more about me? Are you asking out of genuine curiosity, Pilate, or are you only asking because it's secondhand stuff that other people have said about me and you're not really interested in knowing who I am or anything about me, but you just kind of want to evaluate on your own terms? What's going on here, Pilate? Now, Jesus may be the one on trial, Oh, but with this single question, now suddenly it's Pilate's own heart that is on trial. Pilate, are you asking this of me because you want a first-hand encounter with me, or are you just merely doing your job and relying on the second-hand accounts of other people, and now you just want to clarify what they said? First-hand or second-hand? It makes all the difference in the world. I don't think I really need to take any more time explaining this discussion between Pilate and Jesus. It's pretty clear. But what we do need to take some time on, and for the rest of our time, is to bring this home to our own hearts. We need to really bring this home to our own hearts. So this morning, let's think of it this way. This morning we sang a song, In Christ Alone. Or if you were here, you weren't really supposed to be singing, but you are supposed to be, whatever. Whatever was happening there. So we sang this song in Christ Alone that was written, the lyrics of it were written by a man named Stuart Townen. So we sang words like, in Christ alone, my hope is found, he is my strength, my song. We sang, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so here's the question, did you sing that of your own accord? Or are those just the words that Stuart Townen wrote and you mouth them or sang them. We recited the Apostles' Creed, which was written by the early church. It's been recited by Christians throughout all the centuries, confessing our beliefs, primarily, as you read, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus was crucified. We, we confessed, we said, I believe that on the third day he rose from the dead. We said that we believe that Jesus is going to come to judge the living and the dead. We said we believe in the forgiveness of sins. So as you recited that, here's the question. Did you say this of your own accord? Or are those just the words that other Christians have recited century after century? This morning, Pastor Phil prayed, or Tom prayed to even to open the service, praying to God, our Father, saying, Father, we, we have requests of you. We want to meet with you this morning. Did you pray along with that, or was it just Tom's words praying to God, and he's kind of doing religion for you, and it's secondhand for you? Tom's doing the praying, and I'm just kind of listening off to the side. Are we just repeating what others said? So to each of us, Jesus is coming to each of us, just like the Pilate, and he's saying, are you saying all these things because you want to ask them, because it's your firsthand knowledge, or are you only saying them because others have said them about me? Firsthand or secondhand? As I was preparing this message, my heart just grew very burdened Burdened for so many of us, I think, who, well, maybe we've even grown up in the church. We've been around Christianity quite a bit. And so here's what can easily happen is 
we could easily become the Pharisees. You know the Pharisees in the New Testament, right? The Pharisees are the religious conservatives who got all their doctrines straight. Uh, they could answer any question. They were, they were in church every Sunday, so to speak, uh, dedicated, giving their money. In other words, outwardly, everything looked like they were on track. And the great danger, I think, with this question that Jesus is asking is, are you just like the Pharisees? Or do you have a true heart to know me? In other words, is it just all secondhand stuff? You know, you've been in church, maybe you served on committees, you've given money, all this kind of stuff, but your heart is not there. You do not have a firsthand encounter with Christ. Is it all just secondhand religion? Oh, in the New Testament, this is one of the most dangerous things there is. To think that you're really a Christian when really it's all just secondhand religion. You've learned the right words. You've learned the right prayers. You've learned the way that you're properly to act and not to act. So outwardly, things look correct. But inwardly, there's never been an encounter with Christ. And as I was thinking on this and praying this, with this, I wanted to even just bring up the opposite of what I brought up many times, and that is people who've grown up in Christian homes, like myself, for instance. And what I usually want to say here, and I'll say it again, Growing up in a loving Christian home where you are taught the scriptures and taught the gospel from an early age is one of the greatest gifts that God could ever give you. That's usually what I say. But today I actually want to flip it on the other side because there is another side to this. And it's the, the great danger that because you may have grown up with Christian grandparents, Christian parents, or maybe just your spouse is a Christian, again, you kind of know the language, you know the words, you know the right beliefs, you know the right thing to say and not to say in certain situations from being part of Christian culture for a while or something. And this is one of the most dangerous places a person can be. To have been raised or to know all these things, and yet it's always your parents' faith. It was your grandparents' faith. It's your spouse's faith. But it's not your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus is looking at each and every one of us right now, and he's saying to us, is this your personal faith in me? Or is this just your parents' faith in me, your spouse's faith in me, your grandparents' faith in me, your friends' faith in me, firsthand or secondhand? This is then why I call this the problem of secondhand religion, because it looks so real, outwardly, but it's not. It says all the right answers, like even Pilate, he's using the right language. Are you the king of the Jews? That language is correct, king of the Jews. But he's not asking of his own accord, or what this is what Jesus is pressing him in on. Are you asking this of your own accord, or just, is it just what others are saying about me, and you're not actually interested? It has to be our own. So that's the problem of secondhand religion. Now I want to drill a little deeper and just unpack this a little bit, and then we'll come back to Jesus' discussion with Pilate. So in the second place now, I want to talk about why we, and I mean people, I don't, I'm just using this general, let's say, why people actually love secondhand religion. Why is this so attractive? Why do we maybe fall into this whole idea of secondhand religion? And I'm going to give you two quick reasons why I think this is the case. First of all, people love secondhand religion because it's safe. Because it's safe. I've talked to many people who are like teenagers, young adults or something, and they grew up in a home where there was like a, what you might call a form of religion. There was outwardly a respect for religion. And so the parents would say things like, you know, we think it's great that you go to summer camps. 
We think it's great. Maybe you go to church once in a while and stuff like that. But then their son or daughter meets Christ and they are radically saved. And, and this child now has, or child or teenager or young adult has a, a passion in their heart to serve Christ. And now they're wanting to do things like mission trips or maybe want to go to like Bible college or something. Uh, they're starting to give away money. They're witnessing to their friends. And now all of a sudden, this is, the parents are saying, this is not what we thought was good. It was great when there was a little bit of that in your life, just a sprinkle of it. And we think it's good for you. But we're concerned. You're getting too serious about this now. It's taking over everything. It's not safe anymore. We liked it when it was just this thing off to the side that had a a small good influence in your life. You know what I'm talking about? But it's not safe anymore because now it's taking over every part of the person's life and parents are maybe getting concerned. So I think people love secondhand religion because it's safe and they don't like it when suddenly it's not safe anymore. But another reason would be this. I think people love secondhand religion because it's easy. I mean, it doesn't require anything. It's certainly not going to require you to like give up your life and be a missionary somewhere. It's not going to ask that of you, and it's just like a, make sure you got your beliefs straight and make sure you, you know, gives money away once in a while and these kind of things. That's, that's easy for us. It makes me think about a man who was speaking to the famous evangelist named Henry Drummond. And here's what this man said. He said, I used to be concerned about religion. I used to think a lot about it. But religion is a really great subject. There's a lot to it. And I was busy, and there was little time to settle it for myself. So I became a Catholic. And instead of dabbling any longer in religion myself, just left it to the church to do everything for me. Once a year, I go to Mass. And you can just replace that with anything else. It doesn't have to be Catholic. But you see what the person's saying is, can I I let the religious professionals take care of it? Yes, I believe it. Yes, it's sort of part of my life. But it's secondhand. It's, It's not a firsthand thing. Secondhand religion is so easy. It's so easy because it doesn't require anything, really. Certainly doesn't ask you, it certainly doesn't ask you to do anything with your sexuality. It doesn't ask you to do anything with your money. It doesn't ask you to do anything with your time. You're still in control of your life because it's all secondhand stuff. So I think people love secondhand religion because it's safe and it's really easy. And yet we never see this kind of safe and easy thing with Jesus. Jesus is always cutting through it. He's always saying, no, that's not where true joy is found. Jesus is always saying, you need to have a first-hand encounter with me, and when you do, you'll see that everything is worth it to get rid of a second-hand religion. Which makes me think of the story of the famous poet and journalist named Walt Whitman. And Whitman was attending a lecture one night by an astronomer in a, a room that probably felt much like ours feels right now. It was a hot day. It was a hot night evening. And they were in the room was packed out. And everyone was sweating and fanning themselves. And they were watching uh, this lecturer talk about the stars. He was an astronomer. And the astronomer was boring the whole audience with all these charts and graphs and all these kind of things. And, and Whitman could not take it anymore. He finally just got up and he left the room and he went out into the cool night air and he just looked up at the stars themselves. And as we all do when we look up at the stars and we really ponder them, we stand in awe. We stand and go, well, they're so far away. What are they? And our minds begin to comprehend the vastness of space. And so you see, I think why we love secondhand religion is because it's safe and easy. But listen, it's also boring. Very boring. It's just tables and graphs and things. And what Jesus is saying, leave the secondhand religion behind. Come out the door. 
and look up at Jesus, the bright and morning star. Behold him, and you'll leave behind all this secondhand stuff, which at the end of the day, it might be safe and easy, but it's incredibly boring, and it does not inspire the soul as those who have met Christ in a first-hand encounter. So that's maybe some reasons why I think people love second-hand religion. But there's a third thing we need to talk about. We talk about why they love it. But here's actually what I want to flip that now on the other side and say this in the third place. I want to talk about why we actually hate secondhand religion. On the one, we're kind of both sides of this. On the one hand, people love it because it's safe and it's easy. It doesn't require anything of you. And yet on the other side, deep down, I think I want to say people actually hate secondhand religion. Again, for a few reasons. Here's the first one. We hate secondhand religion because it's not secure. It's not secure. We just did this whole sermon series called Through the Storm, talking about how God leads us and guides us through the hard storms of life. But if your religion is just secondhand, it's not secure when you find yourself in a storm. Which makes me think of the most famous example of this in my mind anyways, and that is the, one of the conversion stories of the famous John Wesley. John Wesley was the uh, Billy Graham of the 18th century, if you will. Very famous evangelist. And he grew up with Christianity, grew up in a strong Christian home. He studied Christianity academically in his, his bachelor's degree. He began going on mission trips even. But for him, it was all secondhand. It was a dry, formal religion. He had never personally encountered Christ. It was kind of academic, and here's the morals that you need to follow. Here's the things that you need to do. Well, one day... Wesley was on a ship crossing the Atlantic, and he got caught, along with everybody else on the ship, in a terrible storm. And everyone honestly feared for their lives. They thought the ship was going down. But there was a small group of missionaries on this ship called the Moravians. And the Moravians, suddenly, amongst everybody else fearing for their lives, were completely peaceful and praying and singing hymns together. And Wesley was struck by this little group of Moravians and could not understand what was going on with them. And so once they got out of the storm, he went up to one of these Moravians and he said, weren't you afraid when we were in the storm? And this man looked at him and said, why should I be afraid? I know Christ. And then he looked at Wesley in the eye and he said, do you know Christ? And Wesley suddenly realized in that moment that all, despite all his upbringing in a great Christian family, his mother was an incredible Christian woman, despite all of this, it was all secondhand for him. It was all academic. It was the right knowledge. It was the right morals. It was all just secondhand religion. And he realized he had never personally encountered Christ. And a short while later, he did and went on to become the John Wesley that we know in history. Secondhand religion is not secure. It will not guide you. It will not comfort you through the storms. When your spouse passes away, so many of our, our great Christians here at Central have passed away over this last year. Some of the great saints here at Central we love so much. But then you listen to their remaining spouses who are left, and of course they're grieving. Of course there's a tremendous sense of loss. But as Paul says, we grieve but we do it with hope. And you talk to those remaining spouses, and I think that's what you will see. They grieve, oh yes, but they're doing it with hope because they have a security in the midst of the storm. It's not a secondhand religion. They know Christ, and it's Christ who is carrying them. So secondhand religion is not secure, but here's another thing we, why I think we actually hate it. We hate secondhand religion because it's not real. 
It's not real. You know, one of the greatest things I love about this present generation of young people is what they want is something authentic. They cannot stand it when there is like, when there's fakeness to it, when there's, you're putting up a front and it's not the real you or something like that. That is one of the great attributes of this gender. They want the real. They want the authentic. Things have changed so much in our culture where 50 years ago, so many people would go to church who did not have any, they wouldn't even say they had a personal relationship with Christ, but they would go to church because it was the good upstanding thing to do. Uh, it, would, it might help you in your job. It would give you a higher standing in the community. That doesn't really work anymore. Now the line is being drawn much more clearly where you're kind of in or you're kind of out. Uh, that's maybe too extreme a language, but it's clear who you are. If you want to come to church, you want to be a Christian, you probably face some pressure for it, some social pressure for it. Things have changed a lot in our culture, but here's the thing that's very clear. The one positive of it all, I'm not saying it's positive that people are not coming to church anymore, but one positive about it all is that people can't stand secondhand religion. The one positive I see in all this moving forward as our culture moves further from Christ is that true Christianity, hopefully Lord willing, will become more clear. It's not clouded by secondhand religion so much anymore. It's clear you're a follower of Christ. You're, you love Christ. I see that difference in your life. It's so different from everybody else. Whereas maybe 50 years ago, it was a little more unclear. People could look very Christian, but maybe they were not. So that's something for you to ponder on anyways. But what is absolutely clear to me is that people are not wanting any type of secondhand religion anymore. People want something authentic. And maybe just as an illustration of this, this could capture everything we're saying this morning, makes me think of the Jurassic Park movies, the dinosaurs in them and such. Think of the very first one, if you've ever seen these. You know, all the great, the main characters of the story, they've all studied dinosaurs their entire life. They can tell you anything about dinosaurs. They got books this thick on dinosaurs. They can show you the, the fossils of the dinosaurs. They can talk for hours about dinosaurs. And then when they finally get to the island... And the first time they ever see real dinosaurs alive, they're absolutely awestruck. They're absolutely just floored by it, filled with joy over it. And suddenly it's like, well, who needs all the books and the fossils when you got the real thing? I think we love secondhand religion because it's safe and because it's easy, but we actually hate it because it's not real and we know it. But what a difference when a person truly encounters Christ. And all just those facts and that history and all these types of things about the Jesus they've learned about. Suddenly they see Jesus as a person. Suddenly they encounter Christ. And when you encounter Christ, all of a sudden you're like, it's just excitement. It's joy. You can't believe who he is and what he has done for you. All those discussions, all that reading, suddenly falls away in the face of the real person of Christ. And so we say, for instance, with Job, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. We cry out with the psalmist, not in some vague way to a supreme being way far away from us that we've read about in books, but rather we say with the psalmist these words, Oh God, you are my God. My God. That's the language of encounter earnestly I seek you. You see how different that is from secondhand religion? This is firsthand, God, you're my God. I know who you are, and I want to seek you with all of my being. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Where can I go to find God, is what the psalmist is asking. 
Is that not so different from secondhand religion? Is this not truly, I say to you truly in your heart, is this not what you want? I say away with dry and dusty religion. What I want is to drink from the fountain of living water. Away with vague ideas and philosophies about God. What we want is to see God in the face of Jesus Christ. Away with worship services, especially ours above all. Away with religious services that just go through motions. May God save us from ever just going through motions. God spare us. Have mercy on us. Away with those things. What we want is to encounter God. All the logistics, all the the TVs or whatever, the cameras, it's all just the logistics to help us to come together and we want to encounter God. Let's pray that in our own hearts. Pray that in your heart. I pray that in mine. That as central begins to reopen, that we as a people, we would never be people that just go through motions. God, spare us from such things. Pray that God by his spirit would meet with us Sunday after Sunday, especially as this building begins to fill more. And we would encounter him so that we would be changed. If you resonate with that, then what you'll be saying next is, okay, yes, yes, that is what I want. I want the real. But how do I get it? How do I get a first-hand encounter? In the final place, let's talk about this for our last few minutes, and that's how to have a first-hand encounter with Christ. And before I directly answer that, let's just come back to Jesus before Pilate because there's a critical thing that we just need to bring home to our hearts, and there's one thing that needs to be clear here, and is this, that just as Pilate, or, yeah, just as Pilate stood alone before Jesus and his soul-piercing question, so also each of us, in the final analysis, stands alone before Jesus and his soul-piercing question. Pilate could not turn to the guards at the door and say, the guards will answer on my behalf. No, Jesus is, Pilate, do you ask this of your own accord? I'm asking you, Pilate. Jesus is saying to us as well, do you ask this of your own accord? Pilate's wife could not answer for him, though she had heard about Jesus as well, especially through her dreams. She'd even dreamed of him. His own wife couldn't ask. No one could answer the question but Pilate himself. And same for us. In the final analysis, only you can answer the questions of Jesus. On Judgment Day, we cannot point to the faith of our parents, as great as their faith might have been. We cannot point to the faith of our grandparents, the the faith of our spouse, the faith of our friends who might be Christians. We cannot point to any of that. For on Judgment Day, we will all stand before Jesus, the risen and reigning King, the judge of the living and the dead, and each of us will stand alone before him to give an account. All these other people in our lives may have tried their best to pass on their experience. And if you've ever sat with them, especially some of the great older saints, you can hear it in their voices. You can hear it's real when they talk of Jesus. I think of my grandmother when uh, Grandma Preeb on her final days, um, she would relate through my, my dad that when she was alone, her husband had passed away some years before in her apartment, in her, in her final days, and she'd say, I'm doing okay. <coughs> Excuse me. I've got my Bible. I've got my hymn book. And she would just talk of Christ. And you know those kind of people. They just, there's a sweetness to how they talk of Christ. 
They know him and what they're trying to do for you and I in that moment, they're trying to just do their best to try to say he's, he's glorious. You need to know him. Their words never come out right. They can never fully express it, but they're doing their best to say to us, do you know Christ like this? Have you had this firsthand encounter? And on judgment day, we will all stand alone before Christ. All their words have only been trying to push us to ask ourselves, do I know Christ? Do I know him personally? Not just do I know I know about him, but do I know him? I'll put it this way as one little illustration to put this all together. How would you define or explain that honey is sweet? Well, I suppose you could do it kind of academically. You could look up a definition. Here's the definition I found. That honey is a food made by honeybees who take flower nectar stored in honeycombs where through the process of evaporation a sweet liquid is produced called honey. Is that accurate? Of course it's accurate. That's the technical definition of why honey becomes sweet and how it becomes honey. A very smart person, a chemist or somebody could probably write a whole book on how the sweetness actually comes in to the honey. And, and that would all be correct. Ah, but there's a world of a difference between trying to define that honey is sweet in those ways and trying to explain to someone that this morning I ate a piece of toasted sourdough bread with honey melted on top and that first bite, oh, the sweetness of honey. That's a world of a difference, isn't it? And how would you explain that to someone else who never had honey? How, how would you do that? Oh, you do your best, I guess. You try to compare it to other things. But what you'd really say to that person is, you need to put a piece of sourdough bread in a toaster, toast it just perfectly, put that honey on top, and you need to taste and see it for yourself. Then you'll know, and you'll be able to define why honey is sweet, even if you can't really find the words to do so. So here's what I'm saying. Do you know the sweetness of Christ? Have you encountered Christ so that you can say, He is sweet to my soul. He is my Savior. He is so glorious. He is so wondrous. I don't have words. I don't know how to explain to you the way that I have encountered him. Oh, I want more in this life. My encounters of him are never enough. And, and I often go astray and I don't taste the sweetness for a while. And I, I just repent of that and I come back to him again. But, oh, I just want you to know the sweetness. Would you be able to say that to somebody else? Or is the Christ that you know merely a figure in history a name in a famous book, someone that your parents and grandparents talked about. Who is Christ to you? Well, how do you have that firsthand encounter? All I can do is repeat to you what happens all through the New Testament. For instance, in John chapter 1, a group of people were interested in following Jesus. Jesus did not turn them away. Rather, he turned and said to them, come and you will see. And so they went to a house with Jesus, spent the whole day with him, an incredible day. They had a first-hand encounter with Jesus, and one of them named Andrew was so taken, he had found God's Messiah. He went running off to find his brother, Simon Peter, and said, you got to come see this guy. We found the Messiah. He had a first-hand encounter, and he went and told Simon Peter, you need to come and have a first-hand encounter. 
The same thing happened to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She had a first-hand encounter with Christ. She was utterly changed in a moment. And then we read these words. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And so the people in town, hearing this first-hand encounter, they went out of the town and were coming to him. And many of them had their own first-hand encounter with Christ then. And so then we go on and we read these words in verse 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said. You had your first encounter, you told us, but no longer is it second-hand for us anymore. No, they said, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves first-hand. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the worlds. They moved from a second-hand knowledge to a first-hand encounter. And this is what all the Christians, or if you've ever met them in your life, are really trying to say to you as well. This is what everybody's always, they're trying to express to you, your Christian parents or grandparents or whatever, they're saying, come see a man. Come see for yourself. If you want this encounter, then here's just a few things you could do to come and see Christ. First of all, keep reading what we call the Gospels. The Gospels, that is the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those books. Read them, for there you learn of Christ and who he is. And if you want to know who he is, you want that first-hand encounter, Get into those Gospels and keep reading them. You'll encounter the risen Christ. Second, keep praying. Sometimes I hear people say, I stopped praying because Jesus just isn't real to me. But could it be that he's not real to you because you stopped praying? He will reveal himself in time. Here's my suggestion as the weather, well, maybe not today or tomorrow, but when it's a little cooler and you can spend some time outside, Set some time aside, take just your Bible, go to a quiet place, maybe with a lawn chair somewhere on the edge of a lake or in a forest somewhere. Say, Jesus, I just want to spend a couple hours. I'm just going to read. I'm going to pause whenever I feel like it to pray. I'm just going to talk with you. Seek him. Seek him and ask him to make himself real to you. And I guarantee you, whether it's for the first time Or it's the millionth time you just feel like you've kind of dried up during COVID and you need a fresh drink from the fountain of life, he will meet with you. He will give you that first-hand encounter. How can I guarantee that? From Jesus' own words. For Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This verse is traditionally often used to speak to non-Christians saying, hey, Jesus, invite Jesus into your life. It can work that way, but you know what? This verse is actually a promise to Christians. It's written to the church in Laodicea, to Christians who maybe have had that door shut too long. And of course, you probably know then the famous painting. It's one of the most famous paintings in the history of the world uh, by William Hunt. It's called The Light of the World. Here's the picture. It is an old picture. Uh, But you can see Jesus is knocking on the door. But what William Hunt wanted to paint, as you'll notice, there's actually no handle uh, for Jesus to go in through the door. It goes open from the other side. And there's vines growing all up over the door. You can't see it here, but the hinges and everything on the door is kind of rusted out. In other words, the door has not been opened up in quite some time. And what William Hunt is trying to show is this is what Christ is saying to his people. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
What a beautiful picture. Again, it's Jesus initiating, the personal God initiating the encounter. I'm knocking. I'm coming. And the invitation to us is open the door. And then what is the language? Is it academic language? No. I will eat with him and he with me. Is there anything, is there a greater word for encounter than eating a meal? I mean, that's experiential language, isn't it? When you eat meal with someone you love and you're enjoying one another's company and we can do more of that when COVID is coming to the end here. That's what Jesus is saying. So Christ, the risen Christ, is saying to each of us today, that door of your life, it's gotten a little rusty. Some vines have been growing over it. But I'm here knocking. Will you open that door through prayer, through the reading of my word, and saying, I want to come and to know fellowship again with you? If you do that, Jesus will come in. He will speak with you, and you will have that firsthand encounter. And then finally, just keep loving. Christ's way is the way of love. And so often we encounter Christ as we love others, as we care for others. Walking the path of love, we learn who he is. So listen to Jesus' question to Pilate once more and to us. Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And we answer this morning, Jesus, we say it of our own accord. Jesus, we open the door. Jesus, we want to encounter you and to know you. We want nothing to do with secondhand religion. We want to know you, Jesus, the risen Christ. We want to know what kind of king you are. We want to be your citizens in your kingdom. And we want to live for you both now and forevermore. We say it, Jesus, of our own accord. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment at the beginning of this series, wherever you are at right now, to just say to Jesus, I want to open that door and I open it now. Come in and eat with me. Let me know fellowship with you. Maybe you need to take a moment and say, I'm sorry the door has remained closed for so long. I've been negligent or whatever the reasons are. Why don't you just take a moment right now, say to Jesus, I'm sorry it hasn't been opened enough. I want to open it again, and I want to meet with you. Jesus, I pray for anyone who has been, who's tuning in today or here today who has never encountered you, that you would meet with them in a powerful way, as you did with John Wesley, who we talked about this morning, as you did with the woman at the well, as you did with Andrew, with Simon Peter, with all these stories that we've heard this morning where you have encountered people firsthand, that you would show them your grace, your mercy. And that you would show them a first-hand encounter of yourself. Jesus, for all of us who do know you have had a first-hand encounter, and we've encountered you many times, we want to do more of that. For whom have we in heaven but you? There's, there's nothing 
in this universe that is greater than you? What do we have on earth besides you? The greatest things in this world are nothing compared to knowing you, Christ. So where maybe our hearts have been enticed by this world and maybe where our vision has grown a little blurry, where we have become sleepy, Jesus, awaken us to our great need for you. And then Jesus, show us again how wondrous you are, how you're worth more than anything. Help us to see clearly, to be alive and awake for you. So I pray for everyone this morning. As we open that door of our lives, Jesus, fulfill your promise. Come in and eat with us. Let us know fellowship with you. We ask this in your precious and glorious name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.